This is what's called a step wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to the program. I'm Ellen Lee Beta. Today on the show, we're looking at nursing from three different angles. We'll look at how communication between doctors, nurses and patients can save lives, how a nurse's knowledge of medication can save lives, and how a new system of nursing could save the healthcare system. But as we look at the healthcare system, we want to shift people to thinking more about not just the cost of healthcare, but what is the value proposition of healthcare. you like it if a pair of scissors was left inside you after an operation? Or what if you had the wrong leg amputated? These are known as sential events. Recently, a Productivity Commission report revealed New South Wales has had the highest number of sential events in five years. But could the problem be poor communication? Jane Stein Parbury is a professor in mental health nursing at UTS. She has recently looked at how failures in communication in emergency departments can harm the patient. And, as she told Jake Morecambe, it's not just about poor communication between staff and patients. It's also about poor communication between the staff themselves. Well, effective interpersonal communication is what we're talking about for starters because there's also, as you know, mass media communication. There's all forms. So we're talking person-to-person communication. And for that to be effective, there has to be shared meaning. What I mean to say and what I say and what you understand me to mean, it's shared. We both understand. With patient care, this is really important because in order to give the best patient care, you have to understand the person's experience because patients don't read the textbook. And once you have that understanding, it's about them putting that into actual practice and working alongside with other staff or just working with the patient to receive or to make sure that they receive the care that they need. Well, in the first instance, it would be working with the patient. You know, the buzzword in contemporary healthcare is patient centered care or person centered care. So for that philosophy to be enacted, we need to know who that person is as a person, not just as a patient, not as a set of symptoms or a disease or a treatment plan, but rather as a person. So on that level with the patient or person, that's where that communication is important. With colleagues, what's critical, again, is that shared understanding, that shared meaning, and what's called a shared mental model, so that we're all operating in the same framework to understand this this patient's care. Now, each member of that healthcare team will bring a different perspective, a different understanding, a different disciplinary background. So what's important with a colleague interaction is that each member of the team brings their bit of the puzzle, as it were, to the table, 
but it has to be able to be put together in a coherent way. And we know that communication is one of the number one causes of adverse patient events, referred to often as sentinel events, which are events that could have been avoided, that when you go back and review them, which is what we do, and look at what happened, it's often that there was some form of miscommunication, poor communication, and that could be, you know, the wrong information, information being given that isn't clear, people don't understand it, it's incomplete. There's a whole variety of where things go omitted, and that's what can cause serious events, like amputating the wrong limb. Mm. You put that into one kind of example, but what are other barriers that I guess nurses or medical staff may face to put it into an emergency context? Because you can have that shared communication, I guess, outside of emergency, but then when you get into someone's being rushed into the hospital and you have to be the nurses or whoever has to be conversing with the person who's come in with that and then with other staff, it seems like in that scenario, everything would be thrown up in the air and you just have to grab the pages as they fall back down. Well, okay, good, good metaphor. What happens in an emergency situation, even, even if it isn't life and death, if it's just simply somebody's come in who has a long-term cardiac history and is experiencing some sort of cardiac event, not life-threatening, but serious enough. So the information about that person, that patient, will be in a variety of different forms in a variety of different places. One place the information will be is obviously inside the clinician's head, Mm. and they'll talk. But the other place that information is is in in the written documentation. We're moving toward electronic medical records, which should help to ease some of these problems. But at the moment, if it's still reliant on a paper documentation, a patient record, that record could be anywhere in the Mm. emergency department. Yeah. And maybe not with the patient, maybe with the doctor who's writing orders in it, maybe with the nurse who's documenting nursing care. You probably wouldn't be surprised, but a lot of time is spent looking for the record. Then the record has to be read. In our emergency study, we had doctors say to us, overtly, I don't have time to read the nurse's notes. So the nurse thinks he or she is communicating something, to the doctor by putting it in the notes, but then if those notes aren't read. Likewise, if a doctor puts a medication order in a, in a patient's record that needs to be given stat or right away, if there's no indication to the nurse that that order's in the chart, what happens is the doctor puts it in, walks away, comes back and says, why hasn't this medication been given? Well, I didn't see it. I did. The record wasn't here. I didn't. So mm. those kind of situations where information isn't put in, well, it's put in one repository in that sense, in the, in the patient record, but it's not equally accessed or accessible to everybody. You were saying that there's still a lot of work to be done to ensure more efficient communication mm. between anybody in that medical realm. So what's, what's the next thing that you think medical professionals should be being taught to kind of fully equip themselves to communicate efficiently in these situations? Well, I suppose in a way it is linguistic in the sense that there has to be a shared common language and a shared way of communicating. Quite a few years ago in a study that I did, I looked at patients in intensive care, another high-stress environment, 
who became confused. Now, at any given time in an intensive care unit, about 80% of patients are confused. Nurses would notice something in a patient and try to communicate that to the doctor. They would notice that the person was not attending to them, not paying attention to them, which is a cardinal symptom of delirium. But the way they communicated that to doctors, doctors didn't understand Mm. because they communicated it in a way that would just say, that patient's just not with me. They're They're not here. They're not with me. From a doctor's perspective, there was no frame of reference to understand what that meant. Other nurses knew, whereas had the language been the language of clinical language to say, this patient is demonstrating signs of severe inattention, and I think what's going on is that they're confused or perhaps delirious. Had that been communicated in, I would call it nursing language, because yeah. nurses <laughs> understand it. <laughs> Doctors didn't, get, didn't understand what the nurse was trying to communicate and therefore just didn't follow through because they couldn't figure out what it is they were being asked to do. Mm. And that's why it's so important that people learn how to clarify. Is this what you're saying? Do I understand this? And in a healthcare setting, it's often difficult to say, I don't know, because the stakes seem too high. I've heard doctors say to each other, you cannot not know. You must know. It's your job to know. So if I had to clarify, I could potentially feel like I'm saying, well, I don't know or I don't understand. And nurses sometimes do it too as well. They pretend as if they understand something when they don't, protecting their own sense of competence or... Or in an attempt to not reflect poorly on themselves. Exactly. So it's much better to err on the side of caution and say, I just not sure I understand, and perhaps cop somebody saying, well, that's because you're stupid or something mm. like that, rather than let a patient suffer as a result of that misunderstanding. Jane Stein Parbury, Professor of Mental Health Nursing at UTS, speaking with Jake Morecambe. Coming up next, how much do nurses know about the medication they're giving patients? We find out about their knowledge of anticoagulants in particular. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Welcome back to the show. I'm Ellen Lee Bitter. When you're in hospital, nurses are the people who are likely to know the most about you and who you have a relationship with. So you like to think that they're an expert in their field, especially if they work in specialised care. Well... This might not be the case according to a small survey looking at how much nurses know about medication for atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation, also known as AF, is a heart abnormality that causes the heart to beat fast and irregularly. The risk of AF increases with age and the risk of stroke or heart attack increases if AF is untreated. There are a range of treatments for AF, the most common being a pill called warfarin. Warfarin is a highly complex drug that interacts with other medications as well as green leafy vegetables, meaning patients have to be aware of the best ways to take the drug. Caleb Ferguson is behind this study looking at just how much nurses know about warfarin. Caleb is a lecturer in the Faculty of Health at UTS. Um, There's a range of anticoagulant medication and within the 
contexts um, of today, we're really talking about um, anticoagulant medication use um, for patients that have atrial fibrillation, which is also known as AF, and it's used a lot of the time to prevent stroke in patients that have AF. So what sort of medications are available to people with AF? So there's different um, pharmacological and non-pharmacological treatments for AF. Pharmacological treatments would really be looking at um, oral anticoagulation. Um, And the main drug that's been used for decades has really been warfarin in particular. And only we've seen in the last sort of five years really developed um, as novel agents or novel oral anticoagulants um, which are also referred to as NOACs um, and so they're called uh, apixaban, um, rivaroxaban and dabigatran. Um, really warfarin's been around for a very long time and it's a complex drug. It needs a lot of routine um, monitoring. Patients have to have bloods taken quite regularly. And there's a lot of interactions with other medications and lifestyle habits um, that patients need to be aware of as well. You, you've recently been looking at how much nurses know about this medication. Were you looking at warfarin in particular or the novel medications or both? Um, so we asked them about both of the medications, um, so all all four of them really, and also a bit about um, antiplatelets, so aspirin too. Um, we're really keen just to kind of get a broad understanding really of nurses' knowledge and practice within Australia and New Zealand around about what's the current state of practice, um, what are nurses doing um, with these agents, what are their role in caring for patients that are on these medications and so you're really hoping that they're giving the right information yeah definitely yeah and i think they're very highly skilled practitioners in providing already um education and counseling on a lot of different areas whether or not that's lifestyle or other medications as well and it is they have that opportunistic um let's say like a couple of minutes with a patient um to talk about you know some of their medications that they might be on so we're hoping that we're hoping that they would be quite um up to date with some of the knowledge and um have quite good practice in that area but your research found the opposite yeah so unfortunately and and this was quite a um eye opener for us because we found that they weren't as as educated and, and as up on some of the treatments as we would have uh, hoped so the survey really found sort of suboptimal uh, levels of knowledge in terms of some of the newer agents, but also warfarin in particular. And we looked at warfarin, and a lot of the survey that we conducted was around about warfarin because warfarin continues to be the medication that most patients are on. It's the most commonly used drug uh, for stroke prevention and AF in the Australian setting. Well, you did mention earlier that warfarin is a complex drug. What makes it so complex? What are the risks of using it? Yeah, it's it's a complex drug just in terms of the way that it works. And um, I'm going to, just in simplified terms here, um, use the word blood thinning um, because that's a lot of the general public would understand. And when we think about AF, the heart would be in a a regular rhythm and um, without the warfarin, a clot might form um, because you have that irregular heartbeat. There's opportunity for blood to clot in the atrium of the heart and then travel up through the neck vessels and lodge in the brain. Um, so 
the very fact that it thins patients' blood and puts them at higher risk of bleeding. And that could range from simple things like nosebleeds that they might have or um, when they're brushing their teeth, they might have bleeding gums um, or it might be just a little bit of bruising. But on the very high end of the spectrum, you could also have a patient that falls over, knocks their head, and then they have a a different type of stroke, which would be a bleed. Um, So it's really a fine balance between um, looking at the, the risks and benefits of the different treatments. Warfarin also interacts with food and obviously with pregnant women, it changes things. How did did nurses rate on their knowledge level of things like this? Yeah, so we conducted this um, survey um, during a conference, which is um, maybe quite a strange uh, method to to conduct a survey. Um, But this was in 2014 at a cardiovascular nursing uh, conference within Australia. And um, we had about 55 responses to the survey, and most of the the respondents were quite experienced cardiovascular nurses in particular. And most had worked in uh, cardiovascular nursing for over 10 years. And there was about a third which were nurse consultants or nurse practitioners. So you would think that they might be a bit more knowledgeable about warfarin in particular because it's been around for quite a while and some of the key medication interactions and, and lifestyle interactions as well. Um, some of the, the knowledge and practice of, of nurses um, reported through the survey were quite worrisome, um, in particular um, things around um, medication to medication interactions and uh, diet to medication interactions and providing education and counselling were, were generally quite uh, poor on a lot of uh, different factors. Um, so it's quite that was quite worrying to me as a researcher to to look at and think wow we really need to do something about this and we really need to improve help improve these nurses knowledge is it the place of the nurses to know this or is it the pharmacists who are dispensing the medication is it their job to tell patients yeah so in a local um context within new south wales uh setting a lot of the time when patients are commenced on this medication um, they're provided with a booklet of information and sat with a pharma- pharmacist to provide them with some sort of baseline knowledge around about the medication in particular. And so perhaps, and I'm kind of hypothesising here around, perhaps nurses have taken a back seat in, in providing that education and counselling and thought this was really more the role and responsibilities of the pharmacist in particular. But nurses are really well placed throughout practice, whether or not that be in a, a GP surgery as a practice nurse um, to another type of clinic and throughout acute and chronic care. There's lots of points in time where a, a nurse would see a patient and would have these small opportunities to really reinforce some of the key messages around about um, being on that medication and living with the heart condition. Um, one of the things I've not mentioned before is around about the duration of this medication, and so it really depends about point point in time around about diagnosis in terms of when someone would be commenced on these medications. But more often than not, it's um, a lifetime duration. Um, and just recently, I was speaking to this um, this gentleman um, in the clinic, and he was telling me, I asked him how long he had been on warfarin for in particular. And he said 45 years, and I was blown away. By it. I was like, how can 
how can a patient have been on a medication um, for 45 years? And So in that case, a nurse would be good to refresh that patient's memory? Definitely, definitely. And there's, there's, with the changes in evidence and, and science as well, there's, there's always new information and contemporary information that patients need to be updated with and provided with. So you think about 45-year uh, span of time, there's, there's lots of time where he would have had interactions with, uh, say, primary healthcare nurses or nurses working in the acute care setting as well. Caleb Ferguson, lecturer in the Faculty of Health at UTS. It seems as though every second week we hear a story about how unsustainable our health system is. There are rising costs of medication, rising costs associated with an ageing population, and rising costs of people living longer with chronic conditions. According to a growing number of researchers, the solution isn't to throw more money at the problem, but to focus more on patients. It's a system called value-based care, and stick with us because it does take a bit to wrap your head around. Value-based care is about providing the best quality care that is evidence-based and results in a patient getting better. It also focuses on the population rather than the individual and looks at where money is best spent. The idea is spending on health care can be better controlled. Jake Morecambe spoke to Patricia Davidson to unpack this concept and also to talk about the role of nurses in value-based healthcare. Patricia is the Dean of the School of Nursing at Johns Hopkins University. Well, I think across the world, and particularly in countries like the United States, the percentage of gross domestic products spent on healthcare is rising. And that's not sustainable in the longer run, but as the population ages and people are living longer with chronic and complex conditions. So we have to shift our focus from acute-based health care to prevention and also community-based care. How do you approach reforming something as huge, not necessarily just on a domestic scale, but on a global scale, reforming the healthcare system. How do you go about doing that? It's important to look at the inherent structural factors that drive healthcare. We have to can't disregard the power relationships that exist in healthcare. We can't disregard that healthcare is big business, that there is a lot of pharmaceutical and device companies that make a huge amount out of healthcare, and that's as well as um, private healthcare providers. But as we look at the healthcare system, we want to shift people to thinking more about not just the cost of healthcare, but what is the value proposition of healthcare. Are we providing the best quality care? Are we providing evidence-based healthcare? And what is the outcomes of the healthcare that we're providing? So that brings us to value-based healthcare. Can you just expand a little bit more on what exactly that is and why is it important? Well, I think it really summarises a philosophical perspective of healthcare where you move from just doing things just because you can to making sure that you're applying appropriate and acceptable treatments within an evidence-based framework to patients that really need that care. It also makes a shift from much more the focus on the individual to the population. And we also want to make sure that we're providing 
the best health care for the greatest number, just not a Rolls-Royce service for a, a very few number. So that means it would lower the costs of health care for those who need it well, I with, th- a, with a better quality service. Well, I think it, it's not just about sort of lowering costs. It's about the more appropriate and judicious expenditure of funds. It's hard to see within the current healthcare environment that the costs of healthcare are actually going to decrease. But what we want to make sure that care is given appropriately. For example, there is data to suggest that probably up to 90% of Australians would like to die at home. But in fact, what happens is the total opposite. The majority of people die in hospitals, often in critical care units, receiving care that is futile and not going to really improve their health outcome or decrease their rate of mortality. So therefore, providing care such as palliative care in the community is a much more judicious and value-based approach to expenditure of health care in certain individuals. So you mentioned there, for those who would wish to die in their home, is this system specific to certain areas of healthcare or is it more a whole rounded system? It looks at the whole range of healthcare, you know, from um, cradle to grave. And we have to look at, you know, where are the best spends in healthcare? And certainly when we look across the lifespan, immunisation is such an amazing, amazingly good use of resources of healthcare in terms of decreasing long-term morbidity and mortality. So we want to look at where are the best spends in terms of healthcare, and we need to shift the focus from expending the majority of our funds on chronic complex conditions to also shifting the focus of funding and activity to more preventive-based care. And when we're talking about preventative-based care, are we talking about the role that nurses play in this healthcare system? Because I know or from what I've read, is a lot of talk about value-based healthcare is also talking about the role that nurses play in this system. I think it's also just making sure that nurses are able to practice to the full extent of their training and their licence. There are many activities that nurses could do, but because of a whole range of regulatory factors, um, nurses are not able to practice to the full extent of their licence. And so nurses can be utilised in a much more effective and efficient way in contemporary healthcare models. We need to move beyond the very physician-centric models of healthcare to more team-based healthcare. And um, particularly in primary care and community-based care, nurses play a critical role in delivery of services. So we want to not just look at substitution models where nurses are doing some things that doctors were primarily responsible for, but also looking at nursing interventions that can augment uh, physician based decisions and really how we work more effectively as team members. So to put this in a practical setting, how would the practice of nursing change under a reformed value-based health system? Well, I think in particular, the role of nurse practitioners would increase in importance. Nurses, when they're prepared and credentialed at the level of nurse practitioners, are able to provide care to make diagnostic decisions and to prescribe medications and therapies. That's just one example. Also, if we look at some of the exciting reforms that have happened in general practice in Australia over the last 
10 to 15 years is the increasing role of the practice nurse. Often doctors have had nurses in surgeries, but they have done more triage-based care or specific task-based care, such as dressings and electrocardiograms. But nurses, particularly registered nurses, are able to engage in more complex care, such as case-based management of complex patients and helping them navigate through the healthcare system. When we look at the deficits in the healthcare system, many of the failures of healthcare are related to communication and coordination. And it's in those areas that really nurses are well-trained and qualified to improve healthcare delivery. So talking in a 2016 setting where we see rising costs of healthcare, under this new proposed system, what are the biggest benefits for the layperson? Well, I think improvement in the quality of care and improving access to evidence-based practice. So I think it's just looking at a more systems-based delivery of care, looking at care of whole populations than solely looking at individuals, which is a really important factor in that trend. Patricia Davidson, Dean of the School of Nursing at Johns Hopkins University, speaking there to Jake Morecambe. That's all from us today. If you would like to hear any past programs, head to 2SER.com forward slash thinkhealth. Please remember that you should not consider the contents of this show medical advice. If you have any questions, go and see your GP. Think Health is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. I'm Ellen Liebeter. See you next week for more in health research and news.